Welcome back to another Future Cities podcast. I'm Cassie Sturman, your host for the day. Currently, I'm a student at Sarah Lawrence College studying climate change science, and this is my very first Future Cities podcast. So let's dive right in. Today, we'll be talking about nature-based solutions and how they impact climate change resilience. Nature-based solutions are those which bolster or adapt natural ecosystems for the purpose of protecting the Earth and its inhabitants from the devastating effects of climate change. Nature-based solutions can occur in many forms. Implemented around the world, the protection and restoration of ecosystems, modifications to nature, and tree planting are all examples of nature-based solutions. Dr. Bernice Rosenzweig is here with us today to discuss nature-based solutions. Dr. Rosenzweig was my professor of global climate change science this past semester at Sarah Lawrence College, so I've had the privilege of learning about nature-based solutions from her. Hi, Bernice. We're so happy to have you here with us today. Hi, Cassie. Thanks. I'm really excited about our discussion on climate change and nature-based solutions. As am I. In class, we spoke in depth about how climate change is impacting our cities and what we might do to mitigate the impacts. A lot of the solutions we came up with were nature-based solutions, such as planting trees to dispel heat. We also focused on exactly how these solutions would mitigate climate change. Can you discuss how nature-based solutions work? So nature-based solutions are solutions that take advantage of the natural functions and processes of ecosystems. So we don't think about it often, but we really rely on natural ecosystems to regulate, for example, water and the flux of water through various sectors of the environment to regulate nutrients, which can become pollutants if they're allowed to enter different sectors of the environment at really great quantities or really great rates. Um, And so when we talk about nature-based solutions, we're taking advantage of these processes that ecosystems use to regulate water and to regulate nutrients and other matter. Why is there a focus on nature-based solutions right now? Why are nature-based solutions so important? So, I mean, this is a really, really loaded question, and we'd have to go back really centuries thinking about the way that Various researchers considered the natural environment as something that was separate from technology. But what we've learned in recent years is that if we really want to do technology and infrastructure well, we shouldn't be thinking of them as something that's separate from nature, but we should be taking advantage of these processes and services that natural ecosystems already provide for us. So there's been a really big recent movement to incorporate nature-based solutions in many aspects of our urban planning, but particularly in climate change resilience. Um, And so there are many manifestations of that. When we think about the green infrastructure plans that are being developed for many cities, those take advantage of the water regulation services of various types of ecosystems, like for example, wetlands to control stormwater rather than building new gray infrastructure like sewers and other pipes. If we think about planting trees, those take advantage of natural processes of trees to promote the infiltration of water um, through evapotranspiration, as well as to provide shade and to do other processes that regulate temperature. And they can play a really important role in heat regulation in urban systems while providing a bunch of co-benefits for urban residents. So what we found is that nature-based solutions are efficient, more efficient than purely gray solutions for two reasons. 
And one is that nature-based solutions are solutions that have really been developed over thousands to even in many cases, millions of years for their environments. Um, they've evolved with their environments and times and they've become optimized to this process of evolution. They also provide, as I mentioned earlier, co-benefits. So they usually don't serve just one function like water regulation, but they'll provide, for example, water regulation functions as well as habitat for other wildlife. Um, and because nature-based solutions provide multiple benefits, they end up being cost-effective. If we were gonna develop conventional or gray infrastructure to serve the function of nature-based solutions, we'd often have to spend a lot more money because we'd have to develop different gray technologies to meet or to provide different functions. If we're utilizing nature-based solutions, these solutions that have been optimized for various environments over really long time scales, um, they work very well in those environments and they can also provide multiple benefits at once. So nature-based solutions are often more effective, more cost-effective and are quite popular right now. To what extent can we rely on these nature-based solutions and what are their limitations? So that's really an exciting area of research right now. Um, since we weren't really considering the, the services and function of ecosystems for so long, we really don't have an, a lot of research yet on how these ecosystems functions. Um, and we don't have enough research to quantify the role of these ecosystems in providing these various functions. So right now there are many researchers in many fields of science from hydrology to ecology to biogeochemistry, um, studying all of the services that um, these natural ecosystems provide from us and conducting field work where we take advantage of new sensors and new technologies to better understand the role that these ecosystems play. So once we have a better understanding of the role of nature-based solutions, we'll be able to use them more reliably and we'll be able to understand when they can be applied effectively and when they really can't. But the other thing to consider is the, the effects of climate change itself. So as I mentioned earlier, nature-based solutions were solutions that evolved over long time scales for specific environments, including envi the climates of those specific environments. And we know that climates in various parts of the world are rapidly changing because of the greenhouse gases that are accumulating in the atmosphere. So as climate changes across the world, that's going to affect the function of ecosystems and the services that they provide for society. So when we think about the use of nature-based solutions, we have to account for the fact that their ecosystem function is going to change due to climate change. How can we decide whether or not a nature-based solution should be employed? When should less natural means be utilized? So I think the answer to that depends on whatever situation that you're considering. And so as we do more research on ecosystem function under various situations and in different locations, we'll be able to better, we'll be able to make better decisions on when and where they should be employed. But I think in, in many cases, there are opportunities to use nature-based solutions either directly to solve, to solve our water management and pollution management problems, or as a supplement to gray infrastructure because of the co-benefits that they provide. So for example, if you're considering something like flood control, a nature-based solution might not be able to prevent flooding in the case of you know, really extreme weather events, but, the nature-based solution might provide 
some flood regulation function during many um, meteorological situations that would result in flooding, and they provide co-benefits that the gray infrastructure that we're using for more extreme events can't doesn't provide. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I really enjoyed the content you introduced. Thanks, Cassie. I did as well. It's been really a pleasure. One excellent example of a nature-based solution is currently under construction in Florida, the Sunshine State. If you've paid any attention to the news, you're aware that Florida's coastal cities have been ravaged by powerful tropical storms with increased frequency in the past few years. Climate change scientists have seen this as a worrying sign, suggesting that parts of Florida will soon be inhospitable to human life due to the devastating damage caused by rising sea levels. However, as the only continental U.S. state with its own barrier reef, Florida has a secret weapon in the fight against climate change. The University of Miami is working to harness it. In order to understand the power of coral reefs in shaping environments, it's important to first understand what corals are. Corals are living creatures who exist within the phylum Cnidarian, alongside jellyfish. These carnivorous underwater invertebrates have the shape of a polyp and tentacles. Inside the polyp are reproductive and digestive tissues. The surrounding tentacles have nemesis, which stings smaller prey for the purpose of consumption. Corals can participate in sexual or asexual reproduction. Corals are incredibly diverse creatures, and some can grow to be as large as 5 inches in diameter. We'll be focusing on hermatypic corals because their hard exoskeletons are conducive to reef building. All corals exist within colonies with similar corals. Coral colonies are often approximately bigger than themselves. A reef. Corals build mineral exoskeletons in order to support themselves in the water and over the course of many generations create a coral reef. The Great Barrier Reef is the largest coral reef system in the world and stretches over 1,400 miles. It's so massive it can be seen from space. Notably, corals are able to build reefs because of their symbiotic relationship with Thalothanthalae, a microscopic organism. Thalothanthalae supports reef growth and survival by photosynthesizing food to share with corals in exchange for other nutrients. Most reefs are classified as fringe reefs because they fringe the shores of land masses. This proximity to the coast provides a plethora of benefits for society as well as our shores. Corals provide essential services to humanity, and in fact, 500,000 people rely on coral reefs for food and income, which is unsurprising once you realize that 25% of the world's fish depend on reefs. Reefs are also a source of medicines and famously facilitate rec- In fact, through the benefits they provide, reefs contribute tens of billions in economic value every year. Notably, reefs also have significance to indigenous cultures around the world. Reefs also reduce wave energy. Coral reefs protect the coast by breaking waves offshore, ensuring that when storms do make contact with the land, they wreak considerably less havoc. Weakened waves mean less coastal erosion, as well as less damage to infrastructure. Reefs can reduce wave energy by up to 97%. When a tropical storm attacked Australia in 2015, the western coast was decimated. The portion of the coast protected by the Ningaloo Reef was almost entirely unaffected. However, current conditions suggest that corals will soon have less power to mitigate storms due to disease, decay, and the likelihood of extinction. Corals have been dying off for three decades now due to warming oceans, 
ocean acidification, pollution, and sedimentation. The most significant danger to corals, though, is the death of thalavanthellae, which occurs when ocean temperatures warm or undergo ocean acidification as a result of CO2 emissions. This is called coral bleaching. Coral bleaching is a serious stress response referred to as bleaching because without thalavanthellae, coral tissues become transparent, allowing humans to see through to the white mineral skeleton. Coral bleaching also weakens the skeleton, hampers their relationship with other sea creatures, and inhibits access to sunlight, slowing down growth rates. Once prey to coral bleaching, corals are vulnerable to any number of harms. Warming oceans are not only harming corals, though. Warm oceans provide more potential energy to developing storms and therefore contribute to their severity. As countries around the world look for ways to save their shores from flooding and coastal erosion, coral bleaching is worrisome. The ability of reefs to protect our shores is predicated upon their ability to grow, and currently, rates of growth among reefs is slowing as sea level increases. Florida has more to lose than most. It's the only continental U.S. state with a barrier reef, and one that's 360 miles across at that. There is great potential for Florida to prevent coastal erosion in an entirely ecologically friendly way. In order to protect its coast and bolster reef growth, Florida's University of Miami is installing 150,000 new coral colonies around existing reefs who are suffering as a result of climate change. The university is also building structures to support the reefs. Artificial reef supports can be made of concrete or plastic. With us today are two members of the Coral Reef Restoration Project's team, Diego Lerman and Landolf Road Barbrigos. Hello professors and thank you for joining us. If you wouldn't mind, go ahead and introduce yourselves and then we'll get started. Hello, my name is uh, Landolf Road Barbrigos. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Civil Architectural and Environmental Engineering at the University of Miami. Uh, my work is on structural morphology which investigates the relationship between structures as well as their form, function, materials, and forces. My work has been focusing on uh, lightweight structures and uh, coastal applications, including eco-friendly solutions for shoreline protection. My name is Diego Lerman. I'm an associate professor at the University of Miami Rosenstiel School within the Marine Biology and Ecology Department. I am a marine ecologist and coral reef ecologist by training. And um, in my lab, the Abenthic Ecology and Restoration Lab, we, um, we document the, uh, the, uh, the status and trends of seagrass communities, mangrove communities, and coral reef communities, mainly here in, um, in Miami, Florida. And for the past 15 years uh, or so, I've been focusing on the active restoration of coral reefs in, in Miami. Uh, within Florida and then elsewhere in the uh, Caribbean. So tell us why you chose to center your work around coral reefs. Well, we have to say that coral reefs are among the most diverse and productive ecosystems. They provide us a wide variety of ecosystem services from habitat to food to recreation and tourism and of course shoreline protection, which is of interest for me personally. Uh, with respect to the shoreline protection, we have to say that the coral reefs dissipate wave energy, they act as low-crested submerged breakwaters, and they reduce the wave height and dissipate the wave energy. Now, Florida has approximately 360 linear miles of coral reefs, 
which have been estimated to provide more than 675 million in flood protection benefits every year. This is very important for us in Miami. We are a high value region, particularly vulnerable to climate change and flooding due to our geographic uh, hurricane prone geographic location and also the unique low line topography. So any solution that addresses climate change and flooding in a sustainable way is worth investigating. And I have to say that for me, the opportunity came through an internal program uh, called ULINK. ULINK stands for the University of Miami Laboratory for Integrative Knowledge and supports uh, teams of scholars from multiple disciplines in collaborative uh, research, problem-based research, which for us was Southeast Florida and coastal protection through coral restoration. This project allowed me to learn about corals, work with corals, and also led to my involvement in the Coral Hub project, which is a national fish and wildlife foundation project. So one of the notable reasons why coral restoration is so important is because it's a great defense against um, wave energy and also coastal erosion. Are coral reefs our best defense against these kinds of storms and coastal erosion? Well, to take a, a step back, you know, the, uh, we're restoring corals for, or, and coral reefs for, uh, you know, a, a bunch of different reasons. You know, if you think about all of the ecosystem services that coral reefs, healthy coral reefs provide, when you lose coral cover and you lose coral abundance, you lose all of those ecosystem services. Coastal protection is just one of those services that they provide. They provide fisheries resources, recreation, uh, tourism revenue. Uh, livelihoods. So the, you know, there's a lot of uh, ecosystem services that are provided by healthy coral reefs that are lost uh, when you lose uh, corals. So we are restoring corals to recover all of those lost ecosystem services, coastal protection being one of them. And uh, so especially here in South Florida, where we have a very vulnerable and also very valuable shoreline, um, because we have probably the most expensive uh, built up a coastal shoreline in the U.S., and we have coral reefs adjacent to these human resources. So it's an ideal setting to uh, first study the role of coastal defenses, natural coastal defenses, and also to uh, try to restore these. So coral reefs are, are part of a, a group of, of three ecosystems that are called ecosystem engineers. It includes coral reefs, seagrass beds, and mangroves that, when healthy, close to the shoreline, provide um, a lot of um, coastal resilience. Uh, they mitigate the impacts of incoming waves, storms. So having these, these three ecosystems in proximity to shore uh, does protect the shorelines. The problem is that we have been losing uh, these ecosystems at alarming rates over the past few decades. So we're now forced to uh, restore, first of all, protect whatever's left, and also restore these ecosystems for all of the services that I provide. So the work that I do spans the whole gamut of, of restoration targets from just recovering populations of corals uh, to recovering coral reefs for coastal protection. So to what extent are these coral reefs able to mitigate wave energy? And do you think that they're gonna be, it's gonna be sustainable in their effort to mitigate wave energy? Coral reefs have been shown to dissipate up to 97% of the incident wave energy. Again, they function like low crested breakwaters. They reduce the wave height and the wave energy basically through uh, wave breaking and friction. 
However, it is important to know that their performance depends on both environmental and physical parameters. In our laboratory tests, where we actually control those key parameters, such as the water depth and the wave height, the wave energy dissipated obtained from a scaled artificial coral reef model that we constructed varied from approximately 95% to 5%, depending on the conditions. And we actually were able to estimate the contribution of the coral skeletons on our human-made structure uh, as uh, uh, varying approximately from 56% to 5%. So corals definitely have an impact and increase that percentage of uh, wave energy dissipation on any artificial structure. Now, when it comes to protecting coastal communities, and especially when it comes to protecting coastal communities from tropical storms, we need to have a portfolio of solutions. There is not a perfect solution. So we need to act at multiple levels from offshore to inland, as well with non-structural measures, which include policies, building codes, land use zoning, and everything else. So you've talked a little bit about how corals and coral reefs um, positively benefit the environment. Can you talk about how restored corals impact your ecosystem? And if there are any negative impacts on the environment of restoring corals in this way? Well, you need to understand that coral reefs, the, you know, the services the, and the functions that they provide are related to their complexity. So, you know, the 3D complexity, the, the rugosity that, that these ecosystems have, that is what provides refuge habitat for associated organisms. And that is what also mitigates wave impact. So you need to have complex 3D structures in place for restoration. So, and when you lose the corals because of bioerosion, uh, the complexity of, of coral reefs is also lost. So we are recovering corals, we're planting corals onto coral reefs to recover the structure of these reefs and thus also recover their systems, their, their, their services. So we are planting populations, in many cases of threatened and endangered species, back onto areas where we rarely see them these days because of a combination of different stressors. So we've lost our corals here in Florida due to a combination of temperature extremes, bleaching, hurricanes, disease, uh, dredging, poor water quality, all of those things that affect corals and coral reefs around the world. We've had those happen here in South Florida. So we've lost not only abundance and cover of corals, but we've lost the, uh, the topography, the complexity of these reefs. So by adding these fast-growing corals, and we are focusing still on the fast-growing branching corals, even though we are also restoring other species, we are rapidly recovering the structure of these reefs. So just to give you an example, we are working with coral species, elkhorns, stackhorn corals, that grow about five to 10 inches per branch per year. That is very fast growth for a coral compared to a massive brain coral that can only grow about an inch in diameter every year. So we are able to uh, plant, first of all, grow them within nurseries, uh, these branching corals and go from a coral that's about the size of your finger, like a fingerling, about five to 10 centimeters in length, to a coral that's about the size of a soccer ball or a basketball uh, within about six months. So when we plant these corals, they start very small, but over months and years, they grow very quickly. They recover the abundance, obviously, 
because we're planting them directly onto the pleated reefs, but they also recover the structure of these reefs. So we are jump-starting the, um, you know, the reef recovery process by focusing first on these fast-growing species. We're also adding, you know, I keep mentioning other species, uh, so we keep adding uh, these slower-growing corals just to uh, recover not only species, but also communities and ecosystems. So we are jump-starting the, um, the recovery of these reefs that have lost so much over the uh, past few decades. So how do you choose which sites to restore? So for the sites, since we're interested in uh, wave energy dissipation, we have to investigate the local environmental conditions that are important for the corals, as well as the hydrodynamics and the vulnerability of the coastal community. So the coral experts will survey the site, take water quality measurements, monitor the coral specimen growth in place. Now for the hydrodynamic conditions, we have to explore the historical data from the buoys and run large hydrodynamic models that will give us the impact of a reef at a location. Uh, the impact on the reef of uh, the impact of the reef on the waves as well as the shore. So for our project uh, that we run right now uh, offshore of Miami Beach, we collaborate with coastal engineers from the University of California Santa Cruz that run numerical models of wave propagation along the cross-shore transect for different coral uh, reef geometries and coral covers and different reef restoration scenarios. Finally, we also check the vulnerability of the coastal community at the shoreline so that we can estimate the benefits from the coral reef in terms of social and economic terms. It is a combination of where the coral grows and where it makes sense from a hydrodynamic and community perspective. So after you've chose which site to restore and the corals you're going to restore it with, what are the main steps you need to take in order to build up these restored reefs? Well, uh, the, uh, the majority of our corals presently are being grown within several underwater nurseries. And uh, we grow the corals on different structures. The most uh, common structure that we use is basically a hanging or floating PVC tree. It looks like a Christmas tree. It's got a, a PVC spine and it's got fiberglass arms. And we are dangling, we're hanging these corals just like a, you know, a Christmas ornament from these trees in midwater. So each one of these trees can house about 120 uh, coral fragments. So we, uh, we give them about six months to grow. And once they get to uh, the size of a softball or a or small soccer ball, then we, uh, we collect them from our coral nursery trees. And then all of this work is done uh, uh, while diving, while scuba diving. Uh, we take these corals, we put them in coolers, get them on our boats, and then go to the uh, sites that we selected. And then the divers will take these corals, these nursery-grown corals, uh, down to the, uh, the reef. And we use uh, a cement mix that we developed. So you're building supports around coral reefs to support their ability to grow, to have these restored reefs, but also to mitigate wave energy. Can you describe their design? Our goal is actually to design structures that are hospitable for uh, corals and effectively dissipate the impact of waves. In other words, what we're trying to do is merge restoration knowledge and engineering knowledge to dissipate wave action through green-gray, green by... Uh, 
meaning nature-based and gray as human-based structures. Now, why waves? If you all know, wave attacks represents an important coastal damage mechanism. Waves cause erosion, impact the integrity of structures. They also uh, indirectly contribute to flooding through overtopping. So when it comes to the design, we have to discuss a little bit what the reef looks like. So the reef morphology. Reefs are typically characterized by a steep slope from deep water to the reef crest, and they're followed by a shallow platform between the crest and the shoreline. So the key characteristic there is that we have that decrease in the water depth. So in our project, we started by investigating a typical trapezoidal breakwater design, which is a structure that is often used in coastal engineering projects for wave dissipation. And our idea was to populate it with corals to increase the bottom friction and thus its wave energy dissipation capability. However, we also consider other more complex geometries and design. From the structure perspective, these designs have a core which prevents wave transmission, so the wave to go through, as well as an armor layer that protects them from the impact of the waves and some protection at the toe for scarring and stability. How have you calibrated these designs to make sure that they not only support the productivity and survival of these corals, but also to ensure that they don't harm the environment around them? So we have to say that there are no design guidelines when it comes to green grade structures, such as the artificial coral reefs. So what we did is we explore uh, a framework which is called structural morphology. Structural morphology refers to the study of the relation between a structure, the form, material, and forces. So in this research, we use biocompatibility as the core design driver. All design aspects have to be compatible with the corals that will be hosted on the structure. Therefore, we combine ecological and biological investigations with studies on material strength and compatibility with the structure, as well as large-scale physical hydrodynamic testing. It is important to understand that this work is highly interdisciplinary. We work closely with marine biologists and other scientists and engineers, integrating knowledge from the different disciplines. And I would even go towards saying that we almost go towards transdisciplinary in the sense that we create a unifying design framework for those type of structures. So do these coral reef restoration projects negatively impact their environment in any way? Uh, they should not. We have to think that uh, coral restoration by itself uh, provides benefits at multiple levels. So again, like there are all these ecosystem services that we have to take into account. On the same time, we have those protective features when it comes to wave energy dissipation. Of course, if we put the reef at the wrong, wrong location, we might amplify the waves. This is what we do when we actually want to generate waves for surfing. So there should be a study behind it. And of course, not all materials will be biocompatible. So we need to provide the necessary uh, science and guidelines and testing before we proceed. And that is what happens right now. There are studies at multiple levels from different disciplines that converge all in order to make this structures, uh, a green-gray infrastructure. How do you account for future sea level in your designs? Uh, well, sea level is not a major concern because we are planting uh, fast-growing corals that should be able to catch up to a sea level rise. And we're also working in shallow environments, um, less than 30 feet. So you know, short-term, uh, while sea level rise is, is a concern for, for coastal communities, um, 
as you know, the, the work that we're doing is shallow enough that you know within the next 50 to 100 years, you know, the crops are still going to be able to uh, to get the light they need to grow and hopefully you know catch up to sea level rise. That, that's the beauty of of using corals for restoration is that you know these are you know organisms that when successful uh, should be able to through growth and accretion catch up to sea level rise. So given the sustainability of this project, how ecologically friendly it is, you know, what does this tell us for coastal cities around the world and whether or not they'll be able to withstand the effects of climate change? I think the uh, importance of coral reef has been uh, highlighted in literature. We know that the benefits are enormous. We know that we need to take action not only in terms of protecting the reefs, but also for their ecosystem services that are very important for uh, both uh, economical and also social benefits there. Uh, the other component there would be that in terms of protecting our coastal communities, they are very important. But again, like we shouldn't rely only on one solution. The other thing is we need to think about the scale. When it comes to protecting a community or the shoreline, we have to act at a large scale. We have to have coordinated action and think of it more like as an infrastructure, a green infrastructure project rather than a site, uh, uh, let's say, installation. So it is very important to take action, coordinated action, uh, in terms of uh, these restoration projects. And restoration by itself has to change a little bit the approach in the sense that this has be has to be upscaled and done a little bit differently in combination with engineering approaches. What can our listeners do to support your work or to support the corals? Well, uh, you know, if you're ever in Florida and Miami, we have a citizen science program that's called Rescue A Reef, where we take members of the public and they do the same work that we do just alongside our experts. They go to the nursery with us in these diving expeditions. They, they clean the coral trees, they collect corals, and then they plant corals. So they actually do the work that we do. So if you're able to, um, to visit us here in Miami, we welcome you. Again, you can look us up as Rescue A Reef. Uh, it's a University of Miami program. And there's other programs that do the same thing up and down the, uh, the Keys. Uh, if you're not able to, um, to uh, participate uh, in these expeditions, obviously donations are always welcome. You can use the same, the same uh, website donate to our program. And um, so those are two very direct ways in which you can uh, help with uh, coral reef restoration. We have uh, workshops that we offer online. We have uh, lectures um, that are part of this educational program um, that we call Rescue Air Reef. So if you're still interested in being engaged and learning more about coral reef ecology, conservation, restoration, you can do that through our educational programs. Thank you both so much for taking this time to speak with us about your work. It's incredible to hear exactly how you're improving outcomes for corals and to get a better idea of how important corals are to our world. Corals are a necessary part of our ecosystem, and without them, we're likely to see parts of our world decimated by coastal erosion. Despite the damage already done, corals can still be saved because they are capable of recovering from coral bleaching. However, if humanity wants to reap the benefits of coral reefs, progress must be made immediately as it can take years for corals to recover from bleaching. Mitigating climate change will need to become a top priority as corals can suffer from as little as 1 or 2 degrees Celsius of change in ocean temperatures. 
Individuals have power in this situation. Little changes such as using coral-friendly sunscreen or learning safe boating, diving, and snorkeling practices can radically alter the landscape for corals. Additionally, if you're fascinated by the work being done and want to get involved, you can join a citizen science mission to build up coral reefs yourself with the University of Miami's Rescue a Reef program. All right, that's our show for the day. Thanks for listening. And make sure to check back for future episodes from Future Cities. The Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.